0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good
1: morning, everyone. Today's reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 21 through 52. If you're ready, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. and at the excuse me and at the end of 8 days when he was circumcised he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God, and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth and the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover and when he was 12 years old they went up according to the custom and when the feast was ended as they were returning the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem his parents did not know it but supposing him to be in the group they went a day's journey and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Well, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke, and as you just heard read for us, uh, we are going to be looking at, um, just as we sequentially work our way through this book, We're looking at what is still very much attached to what many of us would recognize as the Christmas story, the content that consists and makes up the first half of Luke chapter 2. But we have before us sort of the content that you never get to um, in the Christmas story because usually you land on chapter 2 verses 1 through 20 on Christmas day and then next thing you know it's New Year's and you're on to something else. We don't ever quite get to Simeon and we never quite get to Anna and uh, thus we never quite get to the point that Luke wants us to see uh, in the proclamation made by Simeon and what Anna is doing in corroborating as a witness what Simeon is saying and the very, very, as you'll come to see, unique words of Jesus there in verse 49. The whole point is to yet again do what Mary is doing there at the end of verse 51. If you scan down to verse 51, you will notice that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is treasuring up all these things in her heart. She's pondering them. She's wrestling with them. She's chewing them over. She's trying to see what is it that is going on with her unique son. If you remember, this is what Luke wants us to do. He told us point blank in the first four verses of chapter 1. I'm writing to you, a man named Theophilus, all of this content concerning Jesus because I want you to be rock-solid certain concerning what you know about Jesus. And we're going to find yet again that we have some information that we need to be certain about concerning Christ. Sermon title this morning is simply this, the Savior of the World. And I'm emphasizing that word world because that is the emphasis on simeon's song there he's going to talk about the global nature of jesus as savior so if you want to summarize these verses down into a sentence, the main idea that is here before us in these verses at the end of Luke chapter 2 comes down to this. Jesus alone is a God's global Savior. There again, that emphasis on global. Jesus alone is God's global Savior who will accomplish His Father's work of salvation. And that's going to lean in on the words of Jesus there in verse 49. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us see Jesus, to help us understand the words that might be familiar words to us, but I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand these words of Scripture before us, and then we'll dive into our text and see what Luke wants us to see, okay? So, my encouragement to you right now is this. Don't fall asleep, uh, but to pray. Uh, Pray for the person to the left of you. Pray for the person to the right of you. Pray that they would see Jesus understand the scriptures. To be frank, it's an epic waste of 40 minutes or so if it's just merely the words of man right now. We all have better things to do than hear the hear the words of a man named Jonathan Davis. But if it's possible to hear God speak to us clearly from his word and it is to hear the holy spirit as he opens our eyes to grasp our need from Jesus from the word of God which is possible then, this is anything so far from a waste of time. It is what we need as the fuel, the gasoline of the gospel is poured into our souls. Amen? So, this is my encouragement for us to all lift our voices to God and pray right now. So, let's do that. Lord, help us. Help us. Help me. Lord, I want to preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified alone, that is my aim this morning, like the aim of my fellow brother in Christ, the Apostle Paul. Lord, the message, the words of my sermon that are about to be spoken, Lord, I do not stand up here as though I'm coming with just the mere plausible words of wisdom, but we are here this morning to hear the words that I'm going to preach with the trust the hope that this can be a time where there is a demonstration of the Spirit, a demonstration of His power, so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be able to see our absolute need for a Savior whose name is Jesus. The Spirit we trust, you can do this. Holy Spirit, we're asking that You would bring us to understand the words before us this morning. Understanding will not come because I have cleverly orchestrated words into sentences, into paragraphs, into thoughts. Understanding will come as You, Holy Spirit, pierce our hearts, pierce our minds, and open them to understand what is written here before us. Why? So that in the end, our faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but faith would come to rest in the power of God. And who is the power of God? Christ Himself. Holy Spirit, do these things for the namesake, for the glory of our King Jesus. It's in His name I pray. Amen. Well, as is obvious, we're sitting here this morning looking at the end of chapter 2, specifically verses 21 through 52, as Luke's account of the early life of Jesus is coming to an end. Luke 1 and 2 are often just encapsulated with this phrase. They're just sometimes called the infancy narrative, truly the story, the narrative about the infant years, the early years of the life of Christ. Well, that is coming to an end here in chapter 2. This infancy narrative, though, if you just pause and you will remember, it began back in chapter 1, verse 5, but it began in a location. It actually began in the temple of God with the angel's announcement to the man named Zechariah concerning the birth of his son, his son being John the Baptist. Now Luke takes us back to the temple. So he's given us content about the birth announcement to Mary about her son. Mary's had conversations with Elizabeth. Mary has sung her song. John the Baptist has been born. Zachariah, carried along by the spirit, has prophesied concerning his son and what he's going to do in preparing the way for Jesus. John the Baptist is growing, angels have shown up, shepherds have come out of the woodwork, the sky split open, multitudes of angels, all these things have happened. Now what Luke is going to do is say, hey, remember all that stuff, how this whole thing kicked off in the temple of God? I'm going to take you right back to the temple again. And if you notice that this content exists in the temple, Luke wants us to see that something is going on here. He's taking us back to the temple. But this time, we're going to look at two specific events in the early life of Jesus. We're going to look at the way Jesus was presented in the temple as a newborn. And we're going to look at how Jesus was left behind at the temple as a 12-year-old boy. Now, in giving us these two events, Luke is once again doing what Luke loves to do. He is providing us with unique content that you do not find in the other three Gospels that talk about the life of Christ. It is His Gospel alone that gives us any kind of information about Jesus as a child between His birth and public ministry. So out of anything that Luke could have written down, like right what you're not supposed to do is look at the last half of chapter 2 and say, wow, these are the only two things that were unique to the life of Jesus between his birth and the entry into his public ministry as a 30-year-old, somewhere around there. Other things would have been going on, but Luke says you need to see at least these two things. And he puts them before us. Luke could have written down a lot of things. So the question that you're going to learn to ask as we go through the gospel of Luke is why this story? Why this truth? Why this parable? Why put it here in your story, Luke? Why order your gospel in this way? What do you want us to see? Because remember, he's told us that he's leading us to see true things concerning Jesus so that we might be certain concerning Jesus. So if he is with specificity, specifically saying, I am making decisions to put before you true things that I have learned from eyewitnesses and I'm putting them before you, we need to ask, why this content? Why do we need to go back to the temple? Why do we need to know about Mary and Joseph bringing the newborn Jesus into the temple Why do we need to know about 12-year-old Jesus going back to the temple and hearing what he said? Why does Theophilus or anyone else need to know the specific information? And the answer comes down to this. Because in these two events, Jesus newborn in temple, Jesus 12-year-old in temple, we reveal and learn yet another credential concerning why Jesus is the Savior that we need. We see another credential. We see namely our main idea that Jesus alone is God's emphasis global Savior. He didn't come just to save the Jews. He came to save Gentiles, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, which is good news for any of us here this morning. But more than that, Jesus is God's global Savior who will accomplish His Father's work of salvation. When Jesus says what he says as a 12-year-old boy in the temple, he is teaching us something about himself. And Luke says, Theophilus, if you are going to be rock-solid certain concerning the things you've learned, you need to see the global aspect of who Jesus is, and you need to see this reality that he is divine. He is the Son of God, and he must be about his father's business. And we're not talking Joseph in that moment. And that's what's going to be so amazing about what he says. So when we look to our first point, this is what we begin to see, that Jesus alone is God's global Savior. That's point number one, and that covers verses 21 through 40. Jesus alone is God's global Savior. So let's see how Luke begins to unfold this truth before us. You can look in your copy of Scripture in your Bible. If you look starting in verse 21, notice how Luke begins to unroll this truth that Jesus alone is God's global savior. He writes, verse 21, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, that would be Mary Joseph, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So with our attention now fully focused on the temple once again, We learn that Jesus grew up in a household with a mom and a dad who sought to walk in obedience to the law of the Lord. You just see that all over the place here, right? In obedience to the law of the Lord, in obedience to the law of Moses, who was hearing from the Lord and telling things to God's people that this is something of concern to Mary and Joseph. They didn't hear God's word and revelation to them and be like, you know what? We don't really care. They cared a lot. They loved God. They were pursuing Him, and they sought to walk in obedience, not to make themselves right with God, but out of an understanding that we need God. God is the one who will save us, and our desire then is to walk in obedience to Him, and that's what they're doing. If you remember in Leviticus 12 from our studies in the previous study before Luke, God revealed in Leviticus chapter 12 that eight days after a boy was born, he was to be circumcised. So that's what they did. They also understood from Exodus chapter 13 that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So they walked in obedience to that truth. So Luke tells us that it came time for their purification according to Leviticus 12. They not only brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, they're going to set him apart in obedience to Exodus 13 also going to offer a sacrifice according to what God revealed in his law again Leviticus 12 so what are they doing they're saying God has spoken God means what he says and says what he means and we're going to walk in obedience to him but see this that above it all Luke's purpose in recording Mary and Joseph's obedience to the law is not so that we would just focus solely on them We're not to come and sort of pat Mary and Joseph on the back and say, like, wow, way to go, guys. Like, you're phenomenal parents. You're really walking in obedience to the Lord, and that's all we're supposed to to get out of these first couple of of verses. Luke's purpose here in showing us Mary and Joseph walking in obedience to the law is not so that we should focus on them, but rather that we should focus on the child who is called Jesus to see something about him the name jesus is a name which means the lord saves the lord saves so just think about the temple and where mary and joseph are right now think about the temple and all that it stood for it was god's house it was god's dwelling place on earth the temple at this time in redemption history was where people could go and meet with god be with god offer sacrifices to God. Be reconciled to God. No salvation. Be reminded of what it means to be covered by the blood of a sacrifice on my behalf. The temple was a place where priests would mediate, where temples or where sacrifices were offered in the temple where God and sinner could be reconciled. Atonement could be made for sin. And if we learned anything from our studies in the book of Leviticus, it comes down to this, is that it is he who is called Jesus. The one whose name is the Lord saves. He is the fulfillment of all of these things. The temple points forward to our need for Jesus. The sacrificial system points forward to the need for Jesus. Priests point forward to our need for Jesus And now, in very short order, the one who is called the Lord saves, Jesus, is going to accomplish the necessary in order to actually do what His name is about. He's going to save His people from their sins. So now it's this visit to the temple, the fulfillment of everything. Here He is actually in the place that's all pointing forward to Him. Notice that this temple visit from this infant, kicks off two special interactions. One between a man named Simeon and another between a woman named Anna. Luke describes Simeon as a man who was righteous, devout, and waiting. You see that there in verse 25? Simeon was righteous, devout, and waiting. He was righteous in that he was justified by faith in God and thus declared righteous before God. He was devout in that he was obedient to, obedient to God's law. He cared to walk in a way where he, like Mary and Joseph, submitted himself to God and his word. But also notice, just as important as this, is that he was waiting. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. It's a word you don't often hear very much. You hear it maybe one season a year during Christmas time when a couple of hymns pull out that word. We all sing it. None of us really know what it means, but we all sing it anyways. The word consolation is a really fancy like $2 word for comfort. If you've been consoled by someone, you have been comforted, you've been cared for. And so, what Simeon, says Luke, is doing is he's waiting for the comfort of Israel, he's waiting for Israel to be comforted. The hopes of God's people to actually be met. And one of the Old Testament promises that would bring great comfort to the people of God, like Simeon, was this promise that God is going to rescue his people. God promise will save his people from their sin. Promise God will send a Savior who will accomplish all that we need to accomplish so that we might be made right with God. God will rescue His people. And the promise that would have brought great comfort to a man like Simeon and those like him is that rescue was going to come through a suffering, sin-bearing servant like was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. A Savior who would be despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, a savior who would be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities because the Lord God would lay on him the iniquity of us all. If you were to somehow hop in your time machine, bring Simeon forward into 2022 and bring him up on stage and say, Simeon, why are you waiting with such great hope? Why were you waiting for this comfort from God? He'd say this, my hope Is that God would do what God said he was going to do. And this isn't a hope like, I hope it doesn't rain today because I want to go outside and play. This is a hope that is, I know what God is. He is trustworthy, He keeps His promises. When God says, I will do X, we can take it to the bank and cash the check. God will do X. And one of the great promises of the scripture is Isaiah 53. I'm going to send a suffering servant who will bear the sins for not just Jews, but Gentiles for the whole world. And I will make it so that sinners can be reconciled with me. And Simeon would have went, oh man, you have no idea how much comfort that brings to a sinner like me. So Simeon is righteous, devout, and waiting The hope of this kind of Savior is what brought Simeon extreme comfort. But Luke isn't done describing Simeon. Notice that he nearly trips over himself to make sure that we see that what's about to come out of Simeon's mouth did not originate from him, but actually comes from God. Because if you look down in verses 29 through 35, Simeon is about to say something. And there's some extremely important stuff in there. But what we might be tempted to do is to go, well, these are just the words of Simeon. Just the thoughts of Simeon. Simeon has some good ideas and he is forcing them and imposing them onto this little infant that is being held in the arms of Mary and Joseph. And Luke is saying you need to know that what Simeon is about to say... These are not just the thoughts of an old man who has some just sort of hopes and dreams and he's just slapping them onto a random baby who just came into the temple. What you need to know is that the words coming out of Simeon's mouth are born from God himself. And how does Luke stress this? He stresses this by showing us over again, three different times, this is the Holy Spirit at work, this is the Holy Spirit at work, this is the Holy Spirit at work. Look in verse 25. Luke tells us, verse 25... The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. Verse 26, that it had been revealed to him by who? The Holy Spirit, that Simeon would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then in verse 27, that he, Simeon, came, here it is again, in the Spirit, into the temple. And here come the parents, Mary and Joseph. They brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law Simeon scoops Jesus up in his arms, blesses God, and then says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Why is Simeon saying this? Because my eyes have seen your salvation. So now, either in this moment, Theophilus, either in this moment, brothers and sisters before me, Simeon is forcing something onto Jesus, or, Simeon is speaking words as he is being empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what we're getting is the interpretation of these events as God wants us to see them. And Luke says, Theophilus, it's the latter that I want you to see. You see, in one sense, what we can say is that salvation is a plan. When When Simeon looks at the infant Jesus in his arms, he's looking at a little baby about a month, month and a half old, and he says out loud, filled with the Holy Spirit, as he looks at this little infant, my eyes have seen your salvation. And so there's a sense in which the way Simeon is talking is he's saying, yes, the plan of salvation God's plan to save sinners and reconcile sinners who are separated from him, to bring them near into a right relationship with him, is this a plan? The answer is yes, this is God's plan. It's a staggering scheme of God to have a worldwide Jewish Gentile people as the prophets foretold. But what we also can say is this, that salvation is not only a plan, but it's a person. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Simeon can be holding the infant Jesus in his arms and say, my eyes have seen your salvation and mean my eyes have seen the one who will bring about the fulfillment of God's plan to redeem sinners to himself fully, finally, and forever. And in the same breath, mean like I am literally holding salvation in my arms because it's going to be accomplished in this person right here. Simeon fully understands and recognizes that he is, in a sense, holding salvation in his arms as he's rocking the one-month-old baby back and forth, back and forth. Again, the mission of Jesus as Savior is stressed just as we saw last week. You're going to find out that Luke is like a bulldog. He's going to grip onto something and he's going to hold on to it tight. And one of the things he wants you to see with a bulldog's grip is this. Jesus is Savior who came to seek and to save the lost. We saw that last week when the angels split the midnight sky and say, this one in the Bethlehem manger, he is Savior, he is Christ, he is Lord. We talked about this last week. But notice that this time, on the lips of Simeon, yes, the mission of Jesus as Savior is being stressed again, But in this song of Simeon, the emphasis is twisting a little bit over to the scope of this salvation. Who did he come to save? Who did he come to save? So, Theophilus, you need to perk up right now and you need to pay attention. For not only is Jesus the long-promised Savior who came to seek and save the lost, but more specifically, Luke is saying we need to see is that Jesus is God's global Savior global savior he's the savior he says there in verse 31 of all peoples of all peoples and remember this isn't simeon's view on the matter this is god's view on the matter jesus alone will bring the light of salvation to a gentile world and jesus alone will be the glory to god's people israel now notice in verse 33 all this causes joseph and mary to marvel It's blowing their mind. Imagine back into the day when you had a little infant in your arm, if you've ever been there, whether your own infant or someone else's, sitting there rocking that little one-month-old in your arm, and some old man came in and started saying, this is the Savior of the world. This is the one who's going to get the job done. The Holy Spirit said, I wouldn't die until I saw the Savior, and the Holy Spirit is telling me right now, this is the one. He scoops them up out of your arms. You're sort of in freak-out mode. You're like, who in the world is this? What right do you have to come and scoop my baby out of the arms? And then he starts saying these sorts of things. It's, it really doesn't surprise us at all in verse 33 that they stand back and they're like, wow, this is, a little, this is a little extraordinary. I'm marveling in this moment right now what's being said about my son. I think it's a marvel. They're, they're, they're astounded that all of this is taking place. I think there's a sense of them marveling at the fact that yet again, God is using God's people to bring to Mary and Joseph a reminder of the uniqueness of this son. And I think there is a sense of Mary and Joseph marveling Because what they are hearing here is that the universal scope of the good news, the universal scope of the gospel, the universal scope of the fact that salvation for sinners will be accomplished through their son is put before them. And it sort of buckles their knees a little bit like, wow, this is what's going to be accomplished. But notice that this same gospel that will unite Jew and Gentile, because Simeon's not done talking yet, this same gospel that will unite Jew and Gentile will also be a gospel that divides for Jesus' global mission will be hated by many. Isn't that one of the more astounding things as you read the gospels? How the introduction of Christ is almost universally introduced with this is good news of great joy like we heard a couple weeks ago. This is the best news you're ever going to hear. God, your creator, who is holy, it can have nothing to do with sin. Man who is filled with sin, shot through with sin, who cannot have a right relationship with God. The answer to this separation between sinful man and holy God is found in this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, qualified to be the mediator that brings God to men. He's fully qualified as fully man to represent man to God. He's going to come, he's going to bear God's wrath for our sin. He's going to bear our iniquity. He's going to save the souls of many. He's going to cleanse the sin of sinners who come to Him, place their faith in Him, come to Jesus. Jesus is the Savior who came to seek and save the lost. Good news should be great joy. And you know as well as I do, there's people, cultures in the world who hear that and say, I hate that. I hate it with a passion. I will rage against that. I will kill Christians over that. I will destroy churches over that. I will shut down pastors over that truth. And what we see in Simeon's song as he is filled with the Holy Spirit is that this good news that will unite Jew and Gentile into a beautiful Jesus multi-dimensional multi-ethnic kaleidoscope family will be the exact same news that will just cause many to rage with hatred Simeon tells Mary that her son will divide that's the rise and fall of many he will be opposed because of what he says he came to do He's going to expose the hearts of men and all this opposition will call Mary's, cause Mary's heart to be pierced with sorrow. As she watches her son who never sinned, never was disobedient to God, never did anything deserving of the kind of hatred and vitriol and rancor that he's going to receive. He never did anything to deserve it. She's going to watch it all. And it's going to pierce her heart like a sword, says Simeon. But then notice in a flash, Luke is done with Simeon and he turns right to Anna. Anna appears as a second witness corroborating the truth of Simeon's song. And similar to Simeon, who was righteous, devout, and waiting, we see in verse 37 that Anna was worshiping with fasting and prayer, but she is also waiting. He's waiting for the redemption of Israel. Simeon and Anna are two witnesses corroborating one truth. Both of them come together in the temple on that fateful day. And what we're meant to see, says Luke, is this. Is that both of them, hearing from God, come and say, this particular baby is the one. No one else. This particular baby is the one. He is the global savior that we need the point that Anna grasps is that as she hears Simeon saying what he says that she and those like her no longer have to wait it's the song we've been singing the wait is over if you could sort of import contemporary Christian music back into the temple that song would have been cranked to 11 on Anna's radio the wait's over We don't have to look for anyone else. He's right here in front of us. God's global Savior has finally arrived in the flesh. He's growing. He's becoming strong. He's filling with wisdom as the favor of God was upon him. So Jesus alone is God's global Savior, global emphasis. This is a credential. He is the one qualified to save sinners from every nation, tribe, and tongue. But point number two, we also see that Jesus alone is God's Son, god's son who will accomplish his father's work of salvation notice that in between verse 40 and 41 is a 12-year gap so often we read our scriptures just sort of like you know like well jesus was in the temple on monday and here he was in the temple again on tuesday you know like we just sort of stitch it all together so so quick but actually between verse 40 and 41 is a gap of 12 years and notice what Luke writes there starting in verse 41. Look in your copy of Scripture. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. We learned about that in the book of Leviticus in our studies. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So they, again, they were obedient to celebrating the good, good times that we talked about there out of Leviticus 25. 25. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, his parents did not know it. Supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. And then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Very natural response there. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All right, so this is for the kids. Any any kiddos in here, ten years old? Raise your hand. All right, we got a ten year old here. Ten year old back there. Any eleven year olds? Twelve year olds? All right. Any thirteen year olds? Okay, so there you go. So imagine your mom and dad are on a trip, and somehow you got left behind wherever you were. Some of I know my kid would probably think that would be cool. Would you? Yeah. See, there you go. He's fist pumping. He'd be like, actually, that would be sort of fun. And unfortunately i think that's actually happened because i think we've left him here at church before so <laughs> we got home we're like i thought you had I'm like no and then like kyle edmondson i think came rolling up and like like hey here's a kid that you left behind you know so we've been here before right uh but imagine here you are and you come into back into jerusalem And your kid, your 12-year-old, isn't hanging out in some corner of Jerusalem, sucking his thumb and crying because he got left behind, but he's sitting in the temple. He's sitting among the teachers who are trained. They've got all the MDivs, the masters of divinity and theology, and there he is listening to them and asking them questions. Sort of catches you off guard a little bit. What is this 12-year-old doing? And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. As they should have been. But they are not so amused by this, Mary and Joseph, because when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother comes to him and says, son, why have you treated us like this? Because the implication, I think, is back up there earlier when it says that when the feast was ended and as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Jesus made a conscious decision not to go when the whole caravan was heading back to Nazareth. He's like, I'm going to stay behind. Like, it wasn't like he was supposed to be there, like, missed the train, right? Like, the train pulled out of the station at noon, and he got there at 1230, and he's like, oh, shucks, I missed it. Like, he wasn't there on purpose. Why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, all of this detail that Luke gives us sets the stage for the very first recorded words of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. Luke. You're supposed to sit up and pay attention right now. What is Jesus going to say? In response to his mom saying, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been searching for you. We've been greatly distressed. And what many argue is this, is that the climax of the infancy narrative, going back to chapter one, verse five, through all of the Elizabeth and Zachariah and songs and prophecies and angels and shepherds, it all comes to this crescendo right here with the response of Jesus In these verses, when Jesus looks to his mom and dad, to Mary and Joseph, and says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Crescendo point. This is the high point of the infancy narrative in Luke's gospel. Why? Because in saying what Jesus says here, Jesus is voicing what had been proclaimed about Him by the angel Mary when the angel showed up to her and saying, you're about to have a baby boy. And what did the angel say to Mary? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called who? The Son of of God. You see, for Jesus to look Mary and Joseph in the face, but then point to the temple and refer to the temple as my father's house was a clear understanding on the part of Jesus that he was conscious of a relationship with God that none had conceived of before, let alone expressed before. To quote one commentator concerning what Jesus says there in verse 49, this commentator says this, listen, in all the long biblical record, think about all the Old Testament leading up to this point right here. In all the long biblical record, every prophet, every song, every book of history, in all the long biblical record, not even Moses who had built the tabernacle, not David who had longed to build the temple, Nor Solomon, who had actually built the temple, no prophet, no king or commoner, not the most exalted of them ever, not the most exalted of them, had ever referred to the tabernacle or temple as my father's house. Like these are people that you think may have, like if anyone had the right, it would have probably been a Moses or a David or a Solomon. But he says, go back, study, look at it. No one ever looked at the temple, God's house, the place where God met with sinners and said, this is my father's house. But yet here's a 12-year-old boy in the temple taking these words upon his lips. So on the lips of a 12-year-old boy in the temple, this is either unequaled, precocious arrogance on the part of Jesus, or if it is true, it is an announcement on the lips of Jesus himself that is not only unique, but it is explosive because Jesus is saying something true about himself. So again, Luke says, Theophilus, you need to pay attention. This is who Jesus is. This is his identity. And notice what Jesus must do. I must, must, four-letter word, M-U-S-T, must be in my Father's house. As the Son of God, there is a divine necessity that drives His life. He must make His Father's business, namely the salvation of sinners, His business. I have to do it. It's necessary. This mission is what drove Jesus to stay behind in Jerusalem. And this mission of mustness is what will ultimately drive Jesus to accomplish the salvation at the cross. Your homework is go home and look for all the times that Jesus takes onto his lips when he's talking about him going to the cross, and he consistently uses that four-letter word, must. I must go to Jerusalem. I must be beaten. I must be crucified. I must die, and I must rise again. Over and over and over, Luke uses that word, recording the words of Jesus about why he must be about his father's business. Why? Why, Theophilus? Why, you and me? Because... He is God's global Savior. And if He is going to save sinners, then He must go to Jerusalem. He must die on that cross. He must bear God's wrath for sin. He must take the judgment we deserve. He must bear it in full. He must bear the wages of sin, which is death. That means He must die and he must go into the ground, and he must be dead, but he also must rise again, and he must prove that he is the global savior that we know him to be. And so Luke is saying, Theophilus, when you hear the mustness of the 12-year-old in the temple saying, Mom, Dad, don't freak out. After all, I'm in my father's house. Jesus is saying something. I should catch your attention. Now notice in verse 50, Mary and Joseph said, Well, of course, this makes all the sense in the world. Why didn't we see it? Is that what happens? Verse 50, Joseph and Mary did not understand the saying that was spoken to them. The danger is, we go, well, if I was there, if I was Joseph, if I was Mary, I would get all this in a snap. And of course, I'd be celebrating and, you know, creating worship songs to my 12-year-old son. After all, he's God's... No, you wouldn't have. You would have been in the same place and you would have been just as clueless and not understanding when your 12-year-old says, you know, this is my father's house and this is the business I'm supposed to be about. After all, he's the Savior and I'm the one who's the... Com-, you know, like, right, we, we, we wouldn't have gotten all those things. And what you need to know is that just as Luke throughout his gospel is going to roll before us this theme of the mustness of Jesus, accomplishing what must be accomplished for sinners to be reconciled to God, the simultaneous theme that he's going to run right alongside that is this, people's inability to understand and wrestle with and see their need for that Savior. How many times have any of us gone to a neighbor, coworker, friend, family member, spouse, child, clearly explained their need for Jesus, and you're met with this right here? Blank. They just don't get it. They don't see it. They don't understand. Luke is going to run these two parallel themes together because he wants us to see what we need is God for us. For what we need is for God to open our eyes to see. We need God to open our mind to see. Over and again in Luke's gospel, folks will see Jesus, hear Jesus, be challenged by Jesus to come find salvation in him alone. Yet they do not understand Jesus or in line with Simeon's song, they do understand and understand enough what Jesus is saying to where they draw the conclusion, I do not want to hear these things. I stand opposed to it. So the question for you or me to ask is this, do I understand that Jesus alone is the divine sin-bearing Savior for all nations? Do I understand that I need this Savior to save me from what my sin deserves? Or am I someone who stands opposed to Jesus? Friends, Luke has no agenda other than to show us that all God's promises concerning a Savior for all nations have been fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus. That's his agenda. And my agenda for us is the exact same, to see how the law of God is fulfilled in Jesus, how the temple points to Jesus, how the prophets spoke of Jesus, and to see many repent of their sin and turn to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, will you bring these things to pass? What I mean by that is, will you bring it about for us? To see our need for you for some of us it's seeing the need for the very first time to come to jesus to repent of our sin to look to him and trust for the very first time to find salvation in god's global savior lord for those of us who can say this is true of me i have looked to christ I am righteous like Simeon in the sense that God has credited righteousness to me. He's justified me. He's declared me right with him because of my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us to see we never move beyond that. We never move beyond our need to trust walking with Jesus, leaning on him, looking to him. Lord, would you help us to see those in our lives who need to know you? Would you just give us clear eyes for those who maybe just don't see or understand, and clear eyes to see those who maybe just stand opposed to Jesus? Would you break our hearts for them? Would you give us compassion for the lost? Would you give us the desire to seek them out and point them to Jesus? so that they might know salvation in who? Your global Savior. Lord Jesus, do these things for your name's sake and for your glory. God, help us to walk now out into the next six days and 22 hours leaning on you so that we might make your name famous. It's in the name of Christ I pray these things. Amen.